Well, if nobody wants to buy your pigs, it's going to be very hard to justify raising them. The stalls are made out of metal. They often look like the animal is in a cage. And for all intents and purposes, it is a cage. It's not, right? There's no point in calling it what it's not. But the, the system was designed to allow individualized management of a large number of reproducing females. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Farm to Table Talk, I get to talk with farmers, talk to people that want to be farmers, talk to people that want to buy their food from farmers, and talk to people that are curious about how food's being produced. And I'm one of those people that grew up on a farm, not farming anymore, but I have a real interest. And I, I have someone with me today who also grew up on a farm, and he's he's has the opportunity to talk to people about farming and agriculture, and in fact, is a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Platteville. I want to welcome Pete Lammers. Pete, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you. Hey, hey, Pete. I got to ask you, because you are part of a program at the University of Wisconsin at Platteville, but you yourself grew up on a farm, and I'm, I'm just curious when people come and that you're seeing today students that are uh, either majoring in agriculture taking agriculture courses and sign up some of the classes that that you're teaching what do they have in common and what seems to draw them to say that i want to study agriculture As, do they want to be farmers or do they want to do something else related to it what what's the motivation so i think the students that are enrolling in our program in animal science here and dairy science as well, many of the students do have an agricultural background at UW Platteville. Our student base is still largely rural Wisconsin, Northern Illinois, and uh, parts of Iowa. Um, but increasingly, we are having students with no direct experience growing up on a farm or things like that. But in general, what I think draws students to the animal science program is they like working with animals and they like working with livestock and they may not have extensive experience, but they've either shown a 4-H calf or they've shadowed a, a vet in high school. Um, and there, there's just a lot of different career opportunities beyond being the owner operator of what we would call a traditional farm these days. Well, that leads us to talking about what it is exactly we talk about a traditional farm these days. And, and again, I'm, you and I may have something in common if, if we've grew up on farms. And I remember when we growing up on farms, uh, our hogs were outside some of the time. Uh, we had we had open lots. I know that we had sows when they were gestation, when they're pregnant, and it seems like we were feeding them more oats, and they had some. They could be outside in what is today called hoop houses and other things, and come in and and now an awful lot of in the pork industry, for example, is uh, 
has confined buildings that are are enclosed and it almost seems like almost everybody's that way but it's not all not everybody i mean part of the old days it was they'd be with animals outside more i don't know if you've got a guess if you look on the corn belt how much of the of the hog production would be in a confinement in buildings uh, versus those that are using a certain amount of time outside in open areas or lots and fields and so forth I believe USDA has stopped even tracking that in their regular, in their periodic reviews of surveys of animal care and husbandry practices. I would say less than, probably less than 2% of all pigs in the U.S. are raised in a system that has animals outside, but there are an increasing number of farms usually who raise a few number of a small number of pigs that are using some sort of outdoor or enhanced environment type access and they're marketing through into a niche market to get a premium for that differentiated product so are you seeing that in in your area and minnesota wisconsin and so forth are you seeing on a people that are trying that and then if when you say a niche market are they like doing direct sales or farmers markets and that sort of thing yes all of it i mean we we got everything from folks that are marketing in uh direct marketing halves and holes to selling individual cuts at farmers markets we have a number of people or i know of people who are doing sort of a I, I guess we would call it a subscription box of of meat, sort of similar to a vegetable CSA, except it's different cuts of pork, beef, and chicken over the course of a year. Um, there, there are also a number of large or a number of of firms that are that are paying producers to follow certain protocols for raising their pigs. And depending on the protocol and depending on the, the challenge of it, some of those producers are doing very well with the premiums they get for essentially raising bulk pigs and for a niche market, but not having to be directly involved in delivering the pork chop to the consumer. So could you describe one of those kind of systems for me? The, group that I have the most experience with, it's a firm called Nyman Ranch. And the pigs are raised in an environment with bedding. They are not fed animal proteins. They essentially are not given antibiotics unless they're, they're needed to be treated. And just more space allowances, as well as they used to have a requirement for a longer lactation period as well. The farms that I'm familiar with, they'll, they'll raise those pigs and they'll sell some of their animals for a higher premium direct to consumers, but most of their animals are getting loaded into a trailer and hauled to a, a plant that's going to harvest them and, and then the buyer is going to sell those chops. Now, do those pigs typically have uh, space outdoors most of the time or some of the time? There are different requirements for different firms and for different niches. 
it would be safe to say that there's higher potential that some of those are do require outdoor access. But again, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on the individual firm's protocols and expectations, but certainly there are some that do require outdoor access. So I'm curious, when you have people that are enrolling in your in classes uh, there at the university, do you or some of your colleagues talk about that, the different production systems that are available when you're, when you're having almost kind of an introduction to agriculture or introduction to animal production today? We discussed that a little bit in our feeds and feeding course, which, which I'm familiar with because I teach that course, how depending on the size of the firm and the type of management level, we may be worried about 10 different amino acids, or we may just focus on protein, for example. Um, and a very little bit of that in the feeds and feeding. We also have senior level management classes, which I do believe the individual instructors contrast different types of industry. I also lead a course called Livestock Production for Niche Markets, which is an upper level elective where we go into that in a lot of detail. Oh, that's interesting. Well, give us a little bit more of a picture. You don't have to do a lot of detail, but give me the, the broad picture here of when you look at that course and looking at these alternative systems that you're teaching. There's a lot of different ways to make money by raising livestock. And we're very familiar with the highly capitalized commercial system where we're milking 500 cows or we got 10,000 sows and we're marketing thousands of pigs a year. And that's very difficult for a beginning farmer to start in unless they're either marrying into or inheriting that, that type of system. Um, and so for the livestock production for niche markets, it basically grew out of a course, out of a need for students who wanted to farm but didn't have $10 million at their disposal to go buy 1,000 acres and start what is called commercial agriculture today. Um, and so in the, as part of this class, we go and visit with producers who are, who are doing this right now, who are, who are raising pasture-raised broilers, who are doing grass-fed beef, who are raising pigs outside without confinement, um, and, and talk with them and discuss and compare their systems to some that we may be more familiar with. Now, are they often growing their own grain or are these systems taking a smaller footprint to be able to raise the livestock and purchasing their feed? Well, it's very location specific and it really depends on the individual farm. But I would say that it's increasingly more common for producers who are raising livestock for niche markets to be less engaged in crop production simply because purchasing and renting land is an extremely highly capitalized. You, you can raise broilers or chickens or pigs or even cattle on a fairly small acreage. It's very difficult to have access to enough land and equipment in order to make it feasible to grow all their feed for them. It's really interesting to think about this because it is an opportunity for people to get into the business. And I would imagine when they are getting into the business and you're teaching them how to do this sort of farming enterprise, um, it also was the recognition that maybe 
maybe there's higher costs, maybe they need to have more income, but that also means that there has to be consumers that appreciate the difference either in the, the flavor, the taste, or that they care about how the animals are produced. So they've got a market. Absolutely. Where you're talking with students too about here's a way that you can get in without having a million dollars to put up a new hog barn or, or something like that. Hand in glove here. It has to be a consumer market that appreciates that enough to be able to purchase it online or at farmer's market and oftentimes pay a little bit more than they might for some of this other production. I don't know what to label the other production necessarily. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's totally dependent on having a willing and able consumer who's interested in the product and able and willing to pay for it. Well, and probably a willing and able farmer that they have to do a lot more of the work themselves. They can't employ a lot of people. And so they, you might have a farmer that's good at raising hogs or chickens or whatever, but they aren't necessarily good at marketing, or maybe they're not that social that they want to go hang out at a farmer's market or put up their own website. That is definitely probably the weak point. Every farmers are the farmers I work with are very good at raising pigs. Some are not as excited about building the social relationships to market them. <laughs> I think that's a fair statement. You know, one of the practices that in today's modern hog production that has become controversial and of a concern to, to many is that they're all in confinement. They're in buildings and there's some, you know, big buildings. There's great ones. There's some I've been in that there's a lot you could say for the benefit of some of these setups, but one part of it that's become controversial is keeping pregnant gilts or sows in stalls or what's been referred to often as gestation crates. And as the word gets out about those, there's been a lot of pushback. And there are some people that have been against it. And as a result, there are states that are starting to ban the use of gestation crates. And probably the most controversy is coming from California, where we had Prop 12, which uh, not only is saying that there should be minimum space for pregnant sows, but also the meat from that production system shall not sell in California. And they're trying to say that it shouldn't come in from other states. So that's going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And, and I'm wondering, being uh, in the livestock industry, being in an agriculture school, being from a hog farm yourself, I wonder your perspective in seeing this kind of issue evolve. Has it surprised you at all or your friends or colleagues that there's ended up being so much attention and that legislators and consumers have been pushing back about this particular practice of having pregnant sows in, in crates? I can't say that anyone is particularly surprised that it is a concern or an issue or uh, an area of interest. I think it's a fairly straightforward challenge for the industry as, as we have consumers who are more and more curious and vocal about wanting input on how their product, how their, mm -hmm. how their, the food that they eat is raised, that some of the practices that we have traditionally used are, are seen in a less than favorable light. I saw that you were involved in research some years back that was looking at different systems. So did you discover, or are they still discovering whether or not there's efficient alternatives to the 
gestation crates or is it the only way to go if you're going to be large scale and trying to be profitable in the pork industry today? Well, it, it's not as simple as one system good, one system bad, <laughs> obviously, right? But there's a wide range. I've seen exceptionally well-operating, well-managed, environmentally friendly confinement facilities. And I've seen pigs on pasture settings that have terrible welfare and are not performing up to any typical metric that we would consider to be a healthy and productive animal. And yet, I, I think it really comes down to more about the individual who's managing the animals than a system per se. You can make a confinement system with gestation stalls work and be very productive as well as animal welfare friendly. You can also make an alternative system less advantageous. So the work I was doing was looking at using deep bedded hoop barns as an alternative to confinement stalls. And what we found were that production differences were very similar, or there, there really wasn't a huge difference in productivity. It was the differences were where you were spending your time and spending your, your capital, whether you were investing in buildings and ventilation systems and management of those systems, or whether you were investing in developing a workforce that can and will take care of pigs exceptionally and can think about how to monitor and adjust environment to make them comfortable in a less controlled system. So you could make either system work if you're a good manager? Sure. I mean, uh, if you're the manager of a poorly designed barn, you're really up a crack, right? So you, you can't rebuild the barn every day, every morning to make it better. But yes, yeah, so it really comes down to the individual or to the manager of those animals and the caretaker of them. Well, part of the argument, though, for the crates is that the pregnant sows fight, rough each other up. There may be abortions. There may be other issues, and and they're animals. They they will they'll push each other around, and the the bossy one will gets the most feed and stuff like that. In the crates, they all get their share, and they're not being attacked. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, and, and it also depends at what point in time you're looking at it. If you transition from 100% gestation stalls today, tomorrow when you put them all into pens, you're going to have some fighting. You're going to have some pretty severe challenges as those animals adapt to that system. And as you start selecting and calling animals to thrive in the production system that you've decided to manage them in. Um, there are technologies available. We have electronic cell feeders. We have feeding stalls. We have a whole host of various ways to feed large groups of sows without individually housing them. But again, it's what have we invested in and where are we most focused on, on managing? So when you say like some of these systems, then the sow can go into a crate feed and not have others pushing her around, but then back out again and be with the rest of the girls. Right. In the meantime, those, there's a lot of farmers that have spent a lot of money to put crates in and they're finding that in their state or it's becoming, it's losing favor. So this must be, this must be a big concern for people that have designed their barns to be able to have these crates and then see the pressure on having them 
fade out and uh, needing to replace them. I'm, I'm sure it's it's got to hurt. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we also used to have a healthcare system that freely allowed the sale of opium. So, I mean, things change over time. <laughs> you know, I think some people um, maybe need a description. What's, what's a crate look like? Uh, and I think they're somewhere like around seven foot long and two foot wide or, you know, give or take a few inches. The gestation stall that I was looking at in 2007 and comparing it to an alternative was essentially a seven foot long. I believe it was 32 to I believe it was 32 inches wide. Um, it's a space where the sow has and an individual sow is housed in this barred space with in a long line of other females within the the stalls. Um, the stalls are made out of metal. They often look like the animal is in a cage and for all intents and purposes, it is a cage. It's not, right? There's no point in calling it what it's not. Um, but the the system was designed to allow individualized management of a large number of reproducing females. Um, and it's very effective at protecting them against competition for feed and aggression, aggression from other more dominant sows, as well as it very, it facilitates very well um, individual monitoring of the health and welfare of individual sows. So when they become pregnant, though, and then they're in these stalls for three months, three weeks, and three days, I don't know why that sticks with you, Pete, but, you know, in, you, you probably learned that in 4-H like I did, too. It's like three months, three weeks, and three days, and you've got pigs. You know? Right. <laughs> and uh, so they're in those stalls, and they have slots usually in the slotted floors of some sort, so the waste from them on the back end goes down. They've got feed and water at the front end they can stand up and they can move a little bit forward and a little bit back they got some room on the side but not enough to turn around some have said if they did turn around sometimes they you know might poop in their feed and you know there's other issues so they really basically can just get up and get down move a little yep. forward a little bit backwards uh, then when they have the pigs they go into another crate that's not been as controversial it's a farrowing crate the that they can't lay on the pigs, which, which again, you and I both have seen that happen before seeing pigs squished and they're, so there's something that that's easy to defend. Even the, even these other programs that are criticizing the gestation crates are, they're not usually opposed to farrowing crates. So until the pigs wean, they might be in a farrowing crate, but then the cycle starts again and the sow gets bred again and gets back into a gestation crate again. So so it's an interesting process. And like you point out, I mean, people can do a good or a bad job of all kinds of different systems. But the one thing that is the intangible, and I don't know how you teach this, uh, Pete, or, or how you quite deal with it, is uh, consumers or legislators or any of us can just say, gee, I don't like it. You know, they can't quite put their finger on it. Um, but they want to say, like, I don't think the pigs can be happy or it's not being natural. That's such an intangible. I don't know how that you reduce that uneasiness or those kind of questions 
to a to a scientific solution you know it's almost dealing with just the again this kind of intangible that people have a feeling it doesn't seem quite right you know and they would prefer to have farming take place where the animals could move around yeah i i don't disagree i mean we are not strictly rational concrete scientific thinkers i mean the, the, that's not our nature <laughs> Well, science does try to measure the things it can, doesn't it? I mean, uh, again, oh, like when you when you did the science, you could you can do things like count the number of pigs, and and you can tell like other indicators. I suspect of the stress of the of the sow that you can you can measure, and you know we're not doing anything to measure happiness per se, but it's all tends to be in terms of production efficiency probably, you know, heart rate, rate of gain, things like that. Absolutely. And which is why I'm saying that I think at the end of the day, it's a lot more about the right manager for the system than it is about a system per se. Um, we have a stack of reports that show gestation stalls are, are provide terrible welfare and the animals are non-productive and all that. And that pens are the best thing ever. And we have a stack showing the same thing the reverse way. And when you look at the sum of the data, I think it ultimately comes down to that we can raise pigs in many different ways. It's certainly possible to raise them in a, in a pen system rather than an individual stall system. But there's going to be some different things that we need to be managing and focusing on with those animals than in a gestation stall system yeah yeah and change is hard change is hard but is it is it fair for an industry to say you know what this is hard to defend um and our con our consumers our customers have a hard time with this i mean we may believe it's fine and so in our own operation we're going to have a gestation crate but looking down the road if we can switch over we've got to be looking for an exit ramp because it just seems like it's hard to sell this to people that this is the kind of the way we grow when they don't get to move for that period of time, even though personally, you might believe it's the right thing to do for profitability, but also you have no problem. You think you're treating your hogs just fine, but at some where you weigh popular opinion. Well, if nobody wants to buy your pigs, it's going to be very hard to justify raising them. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I would imagine those people that you're teaching how to have these other systems, though, they're running into consumers that do believe it's important to them. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be paying a little bit more, going to a little bit more trouble, getting the, getting the pork, the raising. So I'm just thinking in terms of you start teaching about these new, about these systems and the ones that allow some smaller farms to get going is that they can have a feeling perhaps that uh, the future looks good for what they're doing, uh, that they may feel it's it's the momentum's going their direction, that consumers uh, show an interest in how their livestock is being produced. And so they're probably on the right track. There'll be more attention and more attention this fall with the fact that this will be coming up before the Supreme Court for decisions. And, and there are states across the country that are having phase outs. And some of them, I you know, in Corn Belt, where they produce a lot of hogs. 
but they're picking some dates down the time. And uh, apparently their legislatures have heard enough from some consumers and voters and, and NGOs to say, okay, we're going to pick a point in time and you're going to have to get out of this business. I think they're up to maybe eight or nine states right now that are in that kind of phase out or ban track. And you would have to think there's a few more that are will keep coming down the pike. I would anticipate more are going to be moving away from it than building new facilities and, and using that technology. There's people that do like livestock, would like to be able to be farming, and, and again, aren't able to go spend all the money it takes to build a big operation and ultimately have a contract with Smithfield or someone that, um, to, you know, put pigs through their, their, their system. You must get a good vibe from talking to people like that, that say, wait a minute, you mean there's a way I might be able to be a farmer after all? <laughs> you know, sure. This is a way well, forward. Yeah for, the, yeah. for the students who want to do that. Yes. It's uh it seems to be a good class that I find a lot of, I really enjoy teaching it and working with the students and visiting with the farmers. And you, you look at the age of a farmers that we have now too, that are approaching what, 60 something, somewhere around that. Right. And we need to start getting some young farmers. And, and it's, it's hard to imagine young farmers getting in that can start off big. Well, absolutely. And I think the part of the diversification into livestock and other niche markets is in part adding additional income streams to existing operations. Um, that's where I see the larger size operations. How, how are they participating in these niche markets? They're their main business may be corn and soy in central Iowa, but now they're going to start finishing pigs and direct marketing. Certainly it's not a their main income, but it may be enough to start uh, to help bring another bring another young person into the farm family farm. Well, we've talked about that the implications for these kind of operations as far as uh, direct sales. Uh, you know, they got they can have stories about the genetics. Uh, they can talk about the welfare of the pigs and how they're raised and whether or not they're in confinement. But how much is sustainability or regenerative agriculture going to figure into it? Because you know, there's been recently some grants out on climate change issues and trying to support sustainability but is that story being developed and part of part of the whole package that that these farms are able to project and saying that they're more sustainable they're more regenerative in their operation yes i i mean there certainly is interest in using regenerative or sustainable as, as marketing terms but again, it's it's very, very complicated because it all depends on where you draw the boundary and what sort of things are you interested in. And I can design a set of indicators that will show system A is amazing and system B is terrible. And I can design a set of indicators that indicate that system B is perfect and system A is the worst thing that's operating out there. Um, so I think it's definitely an area of interest. I think we're seeing 
more interest in locally produced and having a relationship with the person that's raising your animals because people are curious and they're willing to go through the more work to 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 source their meat from a producer that they know um but again it's it's not a silver bullet to say my pig was outside so therefore it was more sustainable no i think that's an excellent point and and I think I just want to wrap up, Pete, because I, I I'm really really uh, curious of where you sit. Where you're you're really in the Midwest. You're in an area where there's a lot of livestock production, quite a tradition. You're talking about people getting into the business. You're talking about all of these different trends. And if you're looking ahead, say the next five or ten years, what gives you the most optimism? What is exciting to me is seeing the number of students that are interested in, of course, like livestock production for niche markets and in the number of, and there's still growing consumer demand for animals that were raised in an alternative system closer to the end user. The, those types of markets seem to be continually growing. Um, there is not huge contraction of those types of farms as we thought there might be at some point. Again, they're certainly not the dominant system in the in the farming scape. I, I take a lot of comfort in the fact that there's still multiple ways that we can raise animals and, and make it work here in the Midwest. Well, I appreciate that you're out there on that front line and help training people and bringing your expertise and encouragement to, to that whole dimension. And, and I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Sure, absolutely. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.